Welcome to the Tiny Living Beings podcast season finale. I'm your host, Julia Van Etten. Each episode, I have a conversation with a scientist about a microorganism or science topic they like and why it's interesting to them. Our planet is full of billions of different microscopic organisms, most of which are still unknown to science. The ones we do know are diverse and strange. This week, for the last episode of the season, I spoke with Dr. Ursula Goodenough, who is one of the most impressive and prolific scientists out there, and certainly a role model of mine. We met at a dinner at my PhD advisor's house about a month ago and hit it off and had a lot of fun chatting about all sorts of stuff around a fire pit. Ursula is a brilliant scientist, author, skilled microscopist, pioneering researcher in the field of green algae, specifically chlamydomonas, and a newly inducted member to the National Academy of Sciences. She's also a mother of five and is one of the first women in recent memory who has endorsed the idea of being a scientist and having a family to me, which is something I so often see branded as impossible. In other words, Ursula does it all and isn't afraid to talk about it all. I've had guests on this podcast at various stages of their careers, but Ursula is my first retired career scientist guest, although she is still incredibly busy. When we first met, she was attending and heavily involved in the International Chlamydomonas Conference that was held this year at Princeton. On this episode, instead of asking prepared questions, we kind of just had a nice conversation with no agenda. We discuss her book, The Sacred Depths of Nature, which is not only a thorough and interesting read about the origins and evolution of life, but also a refreshing take on how we can look at life and approach the mysteries of the universe in a spiritual way. We also discuss issues of work-life balance, teaching and science communication techniques, storytelling, how sexy we think Richard Gere is, the biology of chlamydomonas, why sex is so prevalent in nature, and all sorts of other stuff. This was a really special episode, and Ursula is definitely a season finale caliber guest. For more information about microbes of the podcast, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. While some of the content on this podcast may be relevant to human or veterinary medicine, this information is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and do not reflect the views of any institution. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Tiny Living Beings. I'm here today with Dr. Ursula Goodenough, who is a professor emerita at Washington University in St. Louis author of both textbook and popular science books, and someone who may or may not have a budding friendship with me. Hi, Ursula. How are you today? Hi, Julia. We certainly have a budding friendship. (laughs) (laughs) I know we'll unpack a lot of this as the episode goes on, but I always ask people in the beginning, could you just give a brief summary of your scientific background and what it is that you do and what you like to do? I got my job at Washington University after some jobs at Harvard. Before that, I got a PhD at Harvard, bachelor's at Barnard, MA at Columbia. So did the usual training thing. When I got to Washington University as a professor, I stayed there for 38 years and then retired. And while my thesis work and my postdoc work was mostly to do with photosynthesis, when I started my real jobs, I started studying sexual differentiation in an alga. And the alga is called Chlamydomonas, and I'm sure it's familiar to you, but not probably to most people. It's a green soil alga, eukaryotic, and has a sexual cycle with mating types that form a spore and the meiosis, so a regular eukaryotic life cycle. And we figured out a lot of stuff about how that works. Did some work as well on how cilia beat and 
tried, well, succeeded in getting Chlamydomonas to make a lot of triacylglyceride, which is the precursor for diesel biofuel. But it turns out that algae just aren't a good platform for doing that. So that all kind of went away. And in 2017, I retired. I moved to a house I've had here for a long time on Martha's Vineyard. My two daughters also live here. So there are five grandchildren on the island and there are four other grandchildren and three sons. That's the dream. I'm very jealous. I want to be adopted into this family. For the listeners of the podcast, today's episode is going to be a little different because I think we're just going to talk about whatever we want. But I guess before we get into your book and more of the philosophy of science and science communication, do you want to talk a little bit more about chlamydomonas and studying algae and why that's important? Algae, um, if you count all the prokaryotic cyanobacteria that live in the ocean and they produce 50% of our oxygen, so more than the rainforest. They fix tons of CO2 and they're at the bottom of the food chain in most animal life cycles. So studying them, Chlamydomonas, the common ancestor to Chlamydomonas and plants was mm, about a billion years ago or so. And the green lineages have been, of course, absolutely ecstatic. Um, Mm -hmm. Of those, the algae, uh, most of them are unicellular, but some of them, like the kelps, are multicellular. They inhabit freshwater, saltwater, soils, everything I can think of, I guess, except the air. And they do things they're usually not paid much attention to, but I think that should change. A lot of them are very beautiful, most famous being the diatom, but there's also dinoflagellates that are very gorgeous and so on. So they have beauty as well as function. Awesome. Yeah, I still need to do a dinoflagellate episode. That's the one type of algae that I'm intimidated to talk about because their genomes are so big and their physiologies are so weird. And I don't even know where I would start with that. But (laughs) (laughs) it's a good group. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I also love algae. So we have that in common. And I'm just going to make a not so smooth transition. Like I really want to talk about your book because I read it and I really enjoyed it. It's called The Sacred Depths of Nature and the second edition was recently released. And I just want to tell people listening that it's nice and short. Like it's not this dense, overwhelming science book. It was easy to get through and I feel like anyone could read it, not just a trained scientist. Why did you write this book? (laughs) (laughs) The first two sections of the book are called personal one and personal two, during which I give sort of an answer to that question. I didn't think I was religious. I went through my life not going to anything, but then I went to a conference where people were talking about being religious. And in particular, there was one philosopher named Loyal Rue who was saying, hey, all the religions in history have been based on some sort of large story, the Old New Testament or the Quran or the life of the Buddha. And those stories, the things that happen in these stories are in many ways no longer plausible um, now that we know that water doesn't really turn into wine and that kind of thing. And that there is, however, another large story that's just being put together, which we started out calling the epic of evolution. He suggested that we call it everybody's story, which I think is terrific because it's true for everybody. So there's this story, and what is its religious potential? Could one develop a religious response to the story? And so I tried to hand at it in the first edition and then had 25 years of 
talking about those efforts and other people wrote books. Um, so two years ago, I rewrote it with my new concepts and they also gave me colors. So I had nice pictures and everything. And so the second edition came out just a few months ago. It's really wonderful because you do tell the whole story. You tell the whole story of life or existence from its inception to to animals and animal behavior and consciousness. But you also have these reflections that read like religious reflections. And I thought that was really interesting. And I know from being a scientist that people often think science and religion are things that are mutually exclusive and they're at odds, which I think is a little political sometimes. But I don't know, like, could you talk a little bit more about your journey to recognizing this big epic of evolution as something that's kind of religious? Loyal wrote a book about this called Amythia, where he said that Western civilization in particular lacked a core myth and this was doing us in and we needed one. And so I knew, and he suggested the uh, epic of evolution as being a candidate, but he didn't offer any responses to it. And so I started outlining the story in one side of a sheet of paper in those days and then wrote their mostly spiritual reflections mm -hmm. and their reflections that would include awe and gratitude and assent and joy and fear, you know, lots of things that come up in the spiritual life as I came to understand it. And so then I kind of matched them up. And <laughs> chapter two, which was on X, well, here our reflection might go well with chapter two relating to, let's say, mystery. And, you know, I matched them up and then I started writing it. And in two months, I had this thing and I started sending it to friends and they gave suggestions. So that's how the first edition evolved. And then the second one, I just took what I had and deepened it, broadened it, and wrote pretty much a different book. Yeah, it's really brilliant how you did it. I feel like I share a lot of maybe the more personal feelings that you have in the book. And one of my main takeaways from reading it, which is something I experience a lot doing microscopy and doing science, is really just that the world is beautiful and nature is beautiful. And it is kind of interesting to look at these things and their beauty and be in awe of them. And it, I'm not a religious person, but it is something that does kind of remind me of the things I was taught when I was taught a religion. It's a really cool take that you have. The book is different than other popular science books I've read. The big difference between what I've done, and I've come to understand this basically recently, because I went back to some of, you know, there are a lot of popular science books out now about evolution. Yes. And what I came to realize is that almost all of them, I don't know any other that does it the way I do it, almost all of them presented as a history of discovery. Well, you know, Copernicus saw this and then blah, blah, blah and then um, Newton yep. and, you know, and it's all about the question, the scientist who does the experiment, the result, and then the next one. And that's, a, I, if I have to say it, that's an easy way to do it because, the, you know, the storyline is all out there it's it's temporal and you can just keep on going yeah 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 until you get to the end of the chapter and then you pick another thing that you're interested in and do the history discovery of that so i didn't do that even in the first edition there's no scientists <laughs> discovering anything it's just how and life work and so that was a challenge though because you had to figure out how to mesh things together so it would still come out in a narrative form and 
I think I succeeded pretty well with that. The other is that to say that I don't believe you aren't religious. So it may well be that you do no, no longer go to church, you no longer believe in your religion of origin, whatever it was. But I think that anybody who has a positive response to this book and a positive response to the beauty of nature is a religious person. Well, I'll agree with that. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I think your point about not including scientists is a really good one because I've been struggling recently. This has come up on this podcast a lot, how human focused everything is. Everything is so human focused when, you know, 99 point whatever percent of the planet is microbial life. There's there's so much life and so many natural processes going on that just have nothing to do with humans. And then Whenever I'm doing my own research, like I was recently trying to look up when different geological features in Yellowstone were developed. And like the only information I could find was when certain people named them 200 (laughs) years ago. And I was like, this isn't this isn't helpful. This is all about people. People have only existed for such a small fraction of the whole history. So I I do like how you decouple the human side that we're taught from what's actually out there and what we can experience, which I think is really good. There wasn't a question there, but (laughs) I, 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 I like it. An affirmation. Yeah, there was an affirmation. Yeah, definitely. So I've read the book, I've talked to you, but how do you apply the things you've written about in this book to your daily life? Like, what does a day in the life for you look like if you're like walking on the beach? What are are you thinking about? I think a lot of the stuff that's in the book right now, I mean, you might remember a reflection, I don't know, chapter four or five, where we talk about walking in the woods. Mm Mm-hmm. The creatures are everywhere and I connect with them and I realize my metabolism is the same and my genes are turning on and off and their genes are turning on and off and I connect with them all the way down. I understand how they work. So I have that access to life and you have that access to life, right? You can go there. And when I go there, it's great. But it's not like my walk on the beach and my discovery of, you know, a bird or a clam or something I start thinking about their metabolic pathways. That's sort of baked in. And it feels like what I'm able to do is have that connection that's so a part of my being. But then, you know, I'm also talking about, gee, is it going to rain? And when should I go back to cook dinner? I mean, you know, it's not like Mm -hmm. my thoughts are grandiose. (laughs) I'm just like anybody else in terms of my eyes self going yada, yada, yada all the time. So it's it's more a deepening than uh, some phase shift in thinking. That makes a lot of sense. I get asked a lot when I talk about microscopy. People think I'm having these profound experiences every day. And I'm <laughs> I'm not. I'm just I'm an observer. And like being an yeah. observer is really special. It doesn't have to be like I don't have to be having some existential realization every day. <laughs> um, I mean, paying attention. Uh, I mean, Mary Oliver talks about in her poems about paying attention all the time. And particularly those of us who do microscopy, but but even if you're, you know, well, particularly doing microscopy and particularly microscopy on critters that happen to be alive. So that's been my passion with this little single-celled alga that I work with. I just would spend hours, it seemed like, looking at what they were doing under the microscope and learning from them. Chlamydomonas has become a pretty well-known model. A lot of people work on it now and 
there's a lot of potential with this organism for us to learn how cells work, how genomes operate. You've had a really long and pretty amazing career in science. Could you reflect a little bit on the state of this field when you started versus now and some of the progress that's been made? Yeah. The guy who first pulled the particular species that we work with out of the soil was a guy named Gilbert Smith, who was in California, who found the minced potato fields in Amherst, Massachusetts, and started culturing them and dissecting them, figured out that they had sex, got the two mating types going, and then started giving these collections out to, I guess we can say, the second generation. There were really three or four labs, and those three or four labs then had students uh, who did theses, and it spread, and now, I mean, we just had an international conference on Clamonomonas in Princeton, as you well know, and there were 200 people there, and there have been more than that. It's Most people don't like to go to meetings anymore because of COVID and everything. We Everybody watches online nowadays. But anyway, lots of labs, lots of papers. I think it's the model organism, it and Arabidopsis, for green organisms. And I guess I was third generation. So I trained in the lab of a guy named Paul Levine, who had gotten his cells from somebody who had gotten from Gilbert Smith. And at the time we knew that they made it, but we didn't know how they made it. And so that's really what I focused my career on is we figured out how the two mating types are involved and what genes are involved and how mating type is encoded in the chromosomes and lots of the proteins that they use to fuse together to form a zygote. And we just had a blast. (laughs) It was really fun. Yeah, and really important. I think a lot of us think of unicellular organisms as being so asexual, but I think now as time has gone on, we're finding that almost everything does some sort of sexual reproduction. To my knowledge, maybe an, an exception won't prove the rule. The rule is that all eukaryotic organisms including all the unicellular ones, whenever you do a genome, you find what are called meiotic genes. And these are genes that function only during meiosis. And there's a group of them. So if you just found one, you could say, well, it does something else. But there's a group of them, and they're all in frame. And so even though that organism has not been observed to do this in the lab, that doesn't mean that it doesn't do so from time to time out in the real world. And so... Well, the unicellulars are different from the multicellulars in that most, for example, have to have sex unless we clone them in the lab. They have to have sex to go to the next generation. In the unicellular critters, we talk about their sex as being facultative, that they can divide by mitosis and clone themselves. But when environmental stresses occur, they differentiate into gametes and mate and do the sexual part of their cycle. Could you explain why it's useful for organisms to have sex? The answer is sort of indirect. So what happens is that there are less plants, because it's it's the most familiar example. Plants will sometimes, in fact, abandon sex as we usually know it, which is that gametes, sperm, and eggs come from different critters. And instead, they fertilize themselves. So their eggs and their sperm are identical and they just keep on becoming themselves. So an example most of your listeners probably know of is, for example, a dandelion that is self-fertilizing. And that's a really good strategy in the short term. If you're in an environment where having particular genotype and therefore particular traits is really well adapted to a particular place where you are, 
it's really a good idea not to mix up your genes at every generation and come out with all sorts of new possibilities because you're much better adapted if you don't do that. But flipping that around, we can say that environments do change, <laughs> ecosystems change. And if you're stuck with just one particular way of going about navigating the world and the world changes, then you're toast. So that's the idea of this facultative sex is that a lot of creatures do clone themselves as long as environment's good. But when it isn't, they meet up with each other, mix up their genes and then come out with the products of meiosis that have all sorts of different combinations. And the idea is that some of those combinations are going to be more adaptive to this new environment than the parents were. And it seems like kind of a crazy thing to do. But sex, as we said, has been around since the beginning of eukaryotes. Everybody has it. And so sex is, you know, voting with its feet. <laughs> uh, it's definitely the winning strategy in the long term. Keep on having new kinds of things show up. That's a good explanation. Thank you. I don't know if this is something you want to talk about on the podcast, but I do want to ask you some stuff about just like being a woman in science. Sure. I know that. So, so your career has spanned six decades, which is pretty amazing. And I'm sure that each of those decades was different. Hello? All right. Being a woman in science. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I was a woman. I had five kids. Um, I wanted to be a scientist and I wanted to be a mother. And I just figured I was going to do both of them. So I used daycare. I had somebody coming to the house when they were little. And after a while, they started taking care of each other <laughs> as much as anything. <laughs> and uh, they've turned out fine. And my science turned out fine. And I know there's Lots of people who've had really crummy experiences by being, you know, by having people come up and feel their breasts and uh, make comments and stuff like that. I didn't really have that. Maybe it was that I wasn't pretty enough or maybe I looked kind of scary. I have no idea why, but it really wasn't a problem for me. I certainly talked to friends who told me their stories, and so I was aware of it, but... Um, it didn't happen. So that didn't slow me down when I was very, I think I was very lucky. And same with respect. I always felt like I got my share of respect. And I mean, I was just elected as a member of the National Academy of Sciences, which is the highest honor a scientist can have, even though I wrote these books on religion for crying out loud. And so <laughs> it, it, it worked out. But if you have any questions, I'm glad to We'll talk about them. Just... I don't know if I have specific questions. Like, I, I don't know. I mean. I mean, do you find it a problem? Sometimes. I feel lucky too. Like, I feel like day to day, like things. But I've, see, I've seen some stuff that's troubling. But I think things have changed. And I think that now, often, if something does happen, everybody at least knows that it's wrong and will do something mm -hmm. about it. So yeah, that's really good. But I don't I've I have not heard of many female scientists who have five children. I hear of a lot of women who are one generation before me in science say like I chose not to have kids or like I stopped at one or two because it was too much with the job. So I don't know is there you I mean Well, there were two marriages, okay? Sure. I mean, they were all my kids, but there mm -hmm. were two different husbands. So 
I did have two kids. I thought that was what was going to happen. And then that marriage didn't work out. And I remarried. And my new husband had no children. And so I had two with him. And then the last one, everybody knows, was an accident. But we, <laughs> <laughs> we kept him. So that made fun. <laughs> well, but work-life balance is difficult for everyone. It's difficult for me and all I have is a cat. So I don't know. Is there any... <laughs> there any advice you have for early career scientists who are just trying to juggle their lives in science? You have to, the first thing I said was really my mantra. I really wanted to be a scientist and that meant I went to the lab mm-hmm. nine to five and after they went to bed I stayed up till midnight or one or whatever it took to write lectures the next day or write a paper or work on a grant and the weekends were pretty sacrosanct and um one friend, we were we had sort of a consciousness raising group, as we called women's groups at that time. And we were talking about this. And, and one woman, I remember saying, well, Ursula, the minute you walk into the lab, I see you and you grab an ice bucket and you fill it with water and you start setting up the day's experiments. Whereas I decide to have another cup of coffee and I hang out with my friends for a while. And then I realize it's time to get going. And And I think part of it was just being organized like that, knowing that I did have to leave at five, I couldn't hang out and often had to leave at three to drive somebody to a ballet class or a soccer game. So, you know, it was being organized, I think, thinking, I I guess I'm pretty good at that. Yeah, I've also found I feel like being organized is probably the most important part of doing science. It just it can't be a mess. You have to have a plan. I think that's really important. No, No, my kids are all great, man. I've now grand grandchildren, so uh, it's kept going. That's so nice, and you're you're all hanging out in Martha's Vineyard, which is beautiful. <laughs> well, half of the sun. half of you, okay. <laughs> and the the three sons that don't live here, they come and visit. One that's of them is nice. here now. Uh, that's nice. His daughter. Well, and so. Just upon doing a quick Google search, which I'm sure lots of people listening will do after this episode, I see that in addition to being a researcher, in addition to being an author, you've also traveled quite a bit, you've taught quite a bit, you've mentored, you've traveled the world. I saw photos of you online with the Dalai Lama. I saw photos online of you with Richard Gere, who I find very sexy. Um, so Even sexier in person. Really? <laughs> I love him. Well, so, well, do you want to talk about Richard Gere or... <laughs> <laughs> well, Richard Gere is a Dalai Lama aficionado and has oh. done a lot of supporting of the Dalai Lama's work. So, and I went to see the Dalai Lama as a consequence of writing the first edition of Sacred Depths. So I was sort of in that stream and there was a rich guy who gave money to the Dalai Lama for a week to have scientists come and talk to him about science. And so I was invited to one of those, as was Richard Gere. So. Cool. That's how <laughs> the Richard Gear part happened. <laughs> that's how, that, I was going to say that's how the fifth kid happened. No. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> meeting with the Dalai Lama is a very extreme form of science communication. But I know that when we met in person, we talked a lot about why it's important to communicate science with people, whether that's communicating to students through teaching a course or communicating on social media. Do you have any advice for Anybody listening who wants to get started communicating their science or or who wants to consume science communication, do you have any tips? 
read my book. There's <laughs> 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 a start because I cover a lot. And yeah, I, I, yeah. So the bibliography at the end is, you know, intense. So no one can say that I didn't acknowledge where all my understandings came from. Teaching, it's really important to tell a story. That's how we think. We think in stories. And so coming up with a story, no matter what you're talking about, is good. As we said earlier, very often the story is the history of discovery. And that does give you a story. And people do wonder what's going to happen next. But as I said, I don't really like to do that. So when I was teaching cell biology, I would just in the old days, draw things on the board. And then with when PowerPoint came, use PowerPoint slides. But it was always images. It was always pictures. And I would tell the story about that protein or about that kind of membrane or about that kind of catalytic process as a story. And when you're telling stories about science, one of the things that I think is inevitable is to be anthropomorphic. Uh, this is different from anthropocentric, which means putting humans at the top of the pile. But anthropomorphic is like the enzyme likes to bind to glucose. Okay. Now, obviously, the enzyme doesn't like anything. <laughs> but if using that kind of language, and of course, we do it all the time, we talk about proteins being chaperones, you know, we talk about selfish genes. Uh, so even scientists use anthropomorphisms all the time. But when I have a PowerPoint slide on the screen of an enzyme and showing its shape, I say this enzyme folded so that glucose could fit into here. And that is a story that's telling how the protein folds, reminding my students about that part, and then talking about what the enzyme does once it binds to the glucose, forming a bond with something else or whatever. And that really helps. So uh, that's what I would say is to tell stories, use lots of images. If you're using slides, just have one idea per slide or maybe two, <laughs> but not these big cluttered up things that are hopeless. That's great advice. And that tracks because I, I've consumed mostly when I was in high school and college, every popular science book. Like I feel like I've read every popular science book on the shelf in Barnes and Noble and when I was reading your book, I think one of the early chapters, you explain autocatalysis or something, like how the first life self-replicated. Yeah. <laughs> and I've read that in so many other books. So when I saw that you were going to write about that, I was like, "Ugh, here we go. No one's going to understand this. But your your explanation was very simple and very clear. And the diagrams were very clear. And I even said to my mom, you should read this book it'll make sense to you. So I think, yeah. So, so yeah, you have a nice, I don't want to say simple in a bad way, simple in a good way, way of explaining things without too many unnecessary details. It was nice to well, see this, it broken Well, this one down. isn't simple, but this one works. And this one, yeah. uh, I mean, the one that I chose to give, it starts out, I mean, most explanations of the origin of life, somehow it's, then there was RNA. Or yes. Then there was a membrane. And mm -hmm. then the RNA and the membrane got together. And the whole question of, how in the hell that could have possibly happened isn't raised. And so I like this idea, which comes from a close friend named Terry Deacon, that you just start with one of these cycles that where the participants are just squares and diamonds and triangles. You know, you're not saying anything about what they're made of or what the products are. You're just saying that you can continue to 
make catalysts and therefore to increase the activity of cycle. Yeah, makes sense. I hope that worked. No, it did. It totally worked. It was the it was the best explanation I've seen for that. So great. Yeah. Yeah. Um. What else? Let's see. Let me ask you a question. Go for it. So in the book, I propose that what it is that I'm describing actually be given a name. And so I give it the name of religious naturalist yes. orientation. Okay. Not not religious naturalism, um, but orientation, which is a word that's useful in our vocabulary these days. What's your sexual orientation? What's your ethnic orientation? And so, and as you know, we've set up a group that, you know, people who adopt that orientation can sign up online. What do you, coming into your scientific and personal life, think, what what odds would you give it that this might catch on? What would enhance that possibility? What would get the way of it? So I think the terminology is good. And this is something I've thought about a lot, not necessarily in the context of your book, but I think what would help it catch on is I think that, like, I love that the word naturalist is in it. And I identify as a naturalist. Like, I go out into nature and I I take things and I look at them and I catalog them and I collect them. And I personally am on this crusade to get everyone to understand that they can be a naturalist. So, like, I think something, like, making people aware that, I think that, um, I think some scientists are, like, elitist and they don't want people understanding what they're working on or they don't want to share. And I think that if there's one thing people could take away from this podcast, it's that anyone can go out in nature and appreciate things and learn about them. So I think if people just have more of an awareness of like what it means to be a naturalist, then I think that the terminology you use in the book would just innately make sense. What about the R words? So we started out, you're saying that you didn't use it. And I told you that you might consider using it. Yeah, Um, so religious. You know, we, I'm, perfectly aware that it's a big turnoff for a lot of people and they say they're spiritual but not religious and uh that religion you know almost ruined their life where you know i would quickly try to remind them that there's a difference between being religious and religion which is a a written down state of beliefs and what you're supposed to do on sunday and that kind of thing but still it's it's an uphill battle against the r word and um but for me, spiritual, which is what people seem more comfortable with, doesn't cover it because it doesn't doesn't say anything about the moral obligation and it doesn't say anything about the philosophical piece of being religious. Being spiritual is part of being religious, but I don't think that they're synonyms. Yeah, it's, it's really hard and it's unfortunate for you because I think as defined in the book, I don't have a problem with the word religious at all. I think it makes a lot of sense. It's it's unfortunate. I think a lot of religions have ruined, have put a bad taste in people's mouths. But um, I don't know. I think it probably is an uphill battle. But I do think after reading your book, it makes a lot of sense to me. So anyone who's read your book, I don't think would be upset about the term religious naturalist orientation. But I do okay. think if you were to just go up to someone who wasn't familiar they would might not be so open to it. I don't know, but that's a good question. It's, 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 I mean, I think um, another thing that I find is that your 
definition of naturalist is someone who's going out with the binoculars and yeah. seeing it. Um, I try to make it a little bit deeper in sacred depths and in my own mind and thinking that it's necessary, but not, I would say, the whole ball of wax to just enjoy nature and think it's beautiful and stuff. I think it's really important to understand it all the way down. I agree. Which is, you know, why I wrote the book. I could have just written a book with a lot of pretty pictures. Yeah. And- flowers and parrots and stuff but the idea was to actually experience one's homology with the rest of the world and one's interrelationship evolutionarily with the rest of the world and one's interdependence with the rest of the world and all of those things to my mind can only really be felt deeply once one has you know some concepts along the DNA, RNA, protein, membrane parameter. And there are, so one immediately says, well, that's up to the schools and education. But there's a problem there. I mean, I've, I've read many, you know, middle school and high school curricula where teachers are trying really hard to get kids to be interested in that. And Apparently, it's an uphill battle, and most kids will not take those courses if they can think of any other way to get out of it. So, well, I don't know what to do about that. Well, that's why, like, there it is. Yeah, that. But that's what I was thinking. Like when I was talking about being a naturalist, I wasn't just talking about going out and saying, "Oh, that's a tree, that's a lichen." But I do think I think like humans are naturally curious, and I do think that sometimes we have to embrace those fundamental concepts of biology ourselves and I think if you're going out in nature every day and you're asking like what is this why is this there you're eventually gonna somehow absorb that that right information about like DNA and evolution and I I've always been good at science I've always liked school but I will tell you that my least favorite thing in school growing up was using a microscope I absolutely hated it I would pretend that I it hurt my eyes and I like wouldn't even use it in science class and now that it's my favorite thing in the world so I think probably a crummy microscope that you couldn't Yeah, focus. probably. But but it is like there's definitely something to people have to come to appreciate it in their own way. And sometimes that's through schools. I mean, some schools don't do enough, but like sometimes it's through learning it in school. But sometimes I do think and that's why I liked a lot of the things you wrote about in your book, because there's different ways to take in and appreciate nature. And I think if you're appreciating it to a certain degree, you're gonna be curious about it and you're eventually gonna at least happen upon some of the answers that you want people to happen upon but I don't know that also might be too optimistic so I don't know well we'll see (laughs) yeah but I'm always I I feel the same way I when I learned about endosymbiosis and the origin of eukaryotes it blew my mind and but I didn't learn about it till college before college I I think in high school like AP biology I learned chloroplast and mitochondria look like bacteria that was all I learned and then in in college I Lynn Margulis had just passed away and I learned about endosymbiosis and then I went out on my own and and bought her books and read her books and that totally had a huge impact on me and is why I ended up in Debashish's lab and studying what I study but I don't know why people aren't taught that (laughs) I think about it every day if if we're going to be hopeful let's at least hope that people still keep going to school that science courses still keep being given and that at some point, even if they bore you senseless at the time, you get your first exposure to the fact that, you know, DNA is coded and the RNA is transcribed and that kind of thing, even though it's not, it's the last thing you're thinking about when you're 
walking on the beach or doing anything. Because if you remember my coat closet metaphor at the beginning of the book, where I said that memory is like a coat closet. And when you learn something the first time, you put hooks mm-hmm. in the coat closet. And if you don't have hooks, then it falls to the floor <laughs> when you hear learn about it. So I think that hopefully science courses will at least give people some hooks so that they have when they encounter more interesting and perhaps more challenging information, they have something to hang about. I hope so. And it's hard to say if that works, because when you were just explaining that, I was thinking about the mRNA vaccine and how people are like, I don't want mRNA in my body. And it's like, (laughs) that's all your body is, basically. But then I think, well, a lot of the people that are really antagonistic towards the vaccine are older. And in their defense, we didn't know a lot of this stuff. Like we didn't have things sequenced when they were coming up in school. So maybe the younger generations are better at understanding those things. I definitely think that we talked about this when we met. Social media, I think, is a really good place to learn science. You can also learn things that are fake and that's sad. But I don't know. I've just engaged with so many people and like people like to read the captions we we all write about microscopy and i think i think people are learning and i think that's just such an easy way to consume information is like to see a pretty picture and have someone write a paragraph and some people do abuse it and write things that aren't true whether it's on purpose or not on purpose but i don't know i think going forward there's definitely hope but i don't know i don't know but well, but then some some days i don't think there's hope you better because climate change is oh my god okay so i just asked you a question now it's your turn okay you- i know i asked you this at the bonfire we were at but i wanted to ask it on the podcast so you've done so much microscopy and i wanted to ask you what is one of your favorite things you've ever found or what's something that still sticks with you that you've seen with a microscope so in the old day when i was a graduate student It was a mutant of Clementomonas in the lab that was very complicated because it had a lot of different things wrong with it. It was healthy under one growth condition and not healthy under the other growth condition. And the unhealthy growth condition, there were lots of things that were wrong with it. It couldn't do photosynthesis. It couldn't do this and couldn't do that. And so I got the mutant and I fixed it and worked it up for electron microscopy, making thin sections and put them in the electron microscope that was around at that time in the 60s, where you could only put in four glass plates. Um, then you had to pump the whole thing down and you could take four images. And then you had to break the vacuum and pull those things out and take those four into the dark room. And so I thought I saw something really interesting when I compared the two growth conditions. But I really had to wait until I could look at the image on film or on these glass films and my memory is that you know I took the plates and I put them in the developer and the developer took two minutes and then there was the uh, hypo and then there was the fix and the whole process took about 10 minutes and it was the longest 10 minutes (laughs) I can remember I just couldn't stand it and finally it was ready that I could look at it in the little light box in the in the dark room and I saw what I thought I had seen on the screen which was that in the bad growth conditions, this mutant couldn't make ribosomes in its chloroplast. And so all the proteins that the chloroplast made, as opposed to 
the proteins that were made on cytoplasmic ribosomes, which were most of the ones that then got imported into the chloroplast. These things that were encoded in the chloroplast DNA using your endosymbiosis example, you might want to explain that to your readers. <laughs> um, because the chloroplast ribosomes weren't being made, X, Y, and Z wasn't happening. You know, the enzyme, this enzyme wasn't made in that part of the photosynthetic electron transport chain wasn't being made. So that explained it. And so just with one image, it explained three, oh, I don't know, many, many years of people trying to figure out why this mutant was doing what it was doing. So that was fun. How did that moment feel when it happened? Oh, it was... <laughs> I. It, and, it, you know, I mean, you know, as a scientist that the the ego part of, gee, wasn't I clever to do this? You can't help that. I mean, that's part of what drives us all. But I just remember looking at that empty chloroplastoma with no ribosomes in it as validating so much that we were already beginning to understand about endosymbiosis. And I was just, I was proud that I was the one who actually got such a clear-cut answer or piece of evidence to support this beautiful idea. That's amazing. I, I was recently talking to someone and they asked me like, have you ever had a eureka moment? Have you ever had like a let's phone the president moment? And I, and I was thinking science is so boring sometimes, but yeah, every once in a while that you Are do- yeah. Well, everyone doing science or hearing about it. Oh, too well, like I just think sometimes when you're doing it, like if you're planning an experiment and you have to repeat it a bunch of times in the lab and you're pipetting and you're pipe. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like it's, it's, you know, day to day. I enjoy it. But day to day, it can be pretty mundane. But I do think every once in a while you have a really exciting moment and it makes a lot of hard work pay off. I don't think everyone understands the amount of forethought and planning that goes into experiments and it is nice when something exciting happens <laughs> yeah i loved every minute of it ursula thank you so much for joining me today i strongly encourage everyone to read the sacred depths of nature and i will put a link and are there any other resources you recommend for listeners who want to learn more about you or your work all right so the link to put up and I think I sent it to you, but I'll just say it, www.sacreddeathsofnature.com. Perfect. Um, not the Amazon link or the, you know, because that has buying links on it, but it sure. also describes the book. It describes me and uh, and has lots of stuff on it. So that's the one. And then the other one is a link to our Association of Religious Naturalists. So that's religious hyphen naturalist hyphen association dot org great okay perfect all right and it's called religious naturalist association well, and anybody can join and it's free and um cool. anybody who wants to and we send out one one newsletter a month that's all well that's good that's good to add because that, <laughs> that's that's enticing free i don't one i don't want to get like 10 a month <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been so much fun. I'm so glad I met you and that I got you to come on. I, I, I mean, you have to come to Woods Hole sometime, don't well, you? Well, I will. And that's where I'm applying for my postdoc. So. Oh, yay! All right. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to end the season. 
Meeting Ursula was amazing, and I was nervous to invite her on the podcast, but she seemed excited to come on, and interviewing her was such an honor to me. We covered a lot, and I wish we could have kept the conversation going all day. I love how when I asked her about her favorite microscopic find, she told the story of her electron microscopy images from the 60s, because it must be so cool to have a eureka moment like that that sticks with you for a lifetime. We can all only hope to be so lucky. In hindsight, I wish I asked her about the genetics textbook she authored, but I'm glad we focused on the things that we did. The second edition of her popular science book, The Sacred Depths of Nature, is really cool and I highly recommend it. As I mentioned on the episode, it's not dense or esoteric, and it's a nice easy read, but with a lot of information, and more than anything, it's just really thought-provoking. And I think that's the key to exercising your brain and adding some new info to it without overwhelming yourself. In this book and in the interview that we had, Ursula describes how we are all connected to nature and different ways that we could view things. This has made me think about my own spirituality and whether or not I am of the religious naturalist orientation. And I think the answer is probably yes. Most of us probably are, but you really have to read the book to understand more about what we were talking about. And I think it says a lot that Ursula expressed concern and interest in hearing what I had to say about the idea and her terminology, because the ideas she puts forth in her book are significant, and I think they have an important place in the scientific discourse. I'm curious if, like she wondered, these ideas will catch on more in the future, and I'd love for anyone listening with an opinion on this to let me know what you think. Lastly, I don't know if there will be a season two of this podcast. Maybe, probably, I don't know. If you make me feel like a second season is wanted, I can do this again. Regardless, I want to thank everybody who listened. This was all an experiment for me, and I had no idea how to do this when I started, but I've gotten some good positive and negative feedback throughout, and I hope it served as a pleasant resource or source of entertainment to you all. I haven't put a lot of effort into advertising this podcast since this is all so new to me, but I think it's had about 6,000 downloads so far, and there are listeners in at least 40 or 50 countries around the world. Like, totally blows my mind. If you enjoyed this season and want me to try to do this again, the best thing you can do is to let me know by rating and writing a review. And please subscribe and share this with your friends. This was a lot of hard work, but I'm glad that I did it. I met so many cool scientists and got a lot better at talking to people. At least I hope you think so. So I just want to thank all 18 guests this season for coming on. I seriously love you all, and I can't thank you enough. To wrap this up, I want to say that this final interview reminded me of a quote from a book I read a long time ago that I just spent a little while tracking down. It was called Let Them Eat Shrimp by Kennedy Warren, and I think it's very aligned with Ursula's work and a nice note to end this season on. So here we go. Standing within the green pavilion, I too feel linked to the whole. I imagine a carbon atom in my exhaled breath being fixed in a mangrove leaf that one day drops to the sediment, is macerated by a mud crab, drifts offshore in the organic soup, and is built into a head of staghorn coral that, in 20 years' time, I snorkel past and admire with my grandchild. That scenario doesn't directly mention any microbes, but you could throw some algae or prokaryotes in there in place of the animals, and it works just as well. Thanks for listening this season, and I hope you all have a great day.